Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Bibles and open up to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And uh, if you use one of those, it should be right around page 1200 or just before that. We just want to make sure you all have a copy of God's Word in front of you as we continue navigating through uh, the book of James. There's a lot here. And uh, we want you to see that this is God's word, uh, not Matt's word. I'm going to start in verse 12, and I want to read through verse 18. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Father, we thank You for Your word, and we pray today that You would open our eyes to understand your word, and not just understand it, but live it out practically in the lives you have entrusted to us, that we would be good stewards of this deposit that you entrust into us, the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Since the very beginning of sin entering the world, we as human beings have sought to find someone to blame. It took no time at all that we see in the account of Genesis that when Adam and Eve sinned, that they were quick to direct, redirect the blame for the sin to the next place. God confronted Adam and Adam says, Lord, it's the woman's fault. The woman, God confronts the woman and she says, Lord, it's the serpent's fault. And it doesn't take us long to realize that you and I are prone to the very same thing. If you have any doubt about that, I want you to think back to your childhood, especially if you grew up with siblings. It doesn't take long of remembering to think of a time when something happened and the parent walks in the room. And as a child, you kind of sit there for a moment just staring. And then the question Who did this? Not me. 
And uh, currently in our home, it will go through all three that will say, I didn't do it. And I'm going, well, it didn't happen by itself. So we've got to figure this out, right? Who's to blame? We have, in essence, really convinced ourselves that if we have someone to blame, here's the thing, that it will ease some of our pain, our frustration, our anger, whatever emotions we may be feeling. And maybe it's that we're searching for someone to direct those emotions. If I have someone to blame, then I can direct how I'm feeling towards a specific person or circumstance. When we face trial, who's to blame? When we face temptation, who is to blame? This text helps provide us with some of those answers, but I warn you that you may not be pleased with what you hear. The first thing that is drawn out of this, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Everyone say no one. It's very simple truth that God tests, but he does not tempt. God tests, but he does not tempt. We see that earlier in chapter 1, where we're actually called as the church to count it all joy. Everyone say joy. When we face trials. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces perseverance or steadfastness or long-suffering. In other words, God sends trial that we might grow and become not who we are today. But there is a contrast here when it says, when you're tempted... No one should say, I'm being tempted by God, for God is not tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, there is a question that comes to the surface when we think about these two aspects. If God tests, but he does not tempt, what's the difference? What's the difference between trial and temptation? Unfortunately, we often don't have a good running definition of these things, and so we put the two together and it causes a lot of problem, especially when we start looking for someone to blame. Simply, trial's aim is growth. Okay, everyone say growth. Trial's aim is that we would grow. Temptation's aim is sin. Everyone say sin. Okay? Sin being that temptation draws you to miss the mark of God's holiness. Trial strives to make you more like Jesus. You see the difference? In fact, all throughout the pages of Scripture, you, you want a really sobering read in Scripture sometime, read First Peter. Where the exhortation to the church is, Be prepared to suffer and to suffer with joy, knowing that Jesus suffered before you. Trial will come. It's it's present and that should be both encouraging to you and a wake up call to us as a whole. 
encouraging in the sense that every one of you here has experienced trial at some level in your life. And so the reminder that trial will come and that God uses trial to grow us, to form us, to shape us, praise God. And yet, in the same moment, humbling to consider that we should expect to face further trial. Unless one of you has reached the pinnacle of holiness like Jesus, in which case, please come up and take the pulpit. Okay? None of us have arrived. God is making us more like Jesus. He is forming us. He is doing a work in His church. May we not miss that. But if God does not tempt us, then where does temptation come from? Now, most often, we credit any temptation to Satan, the deceiver. Yet, interestingly, if you notice in this text, there is absolutely no mention of him. Look at verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Everyone say, oh, (laughs) you see why I say you may not like the answer to the question, who's to blame? Because I got to take the finger and point it right back at myself. Temptation happens when I allow desire to control what I'm doing. Temptation is merely the inclination to appease my own flesh rather than walking in obedience to God. Temptation, this is really important. Temptation itself is not a sin. Think about that for a minute, okay? Turn to your neighbor and say, temptation is not a sin. A temptation happens, but when temptation takes place, you have a choice to make. Temptation is merely the inclination of my flesh to want the things that my flesh wants. That does not mean that I, by being tempted, give in to what my flesh wants. Temptation is the pull towards that which my flesh wants. That desire gives birth to sin if we allow it to. And if desire is not placed in check, not only does it lead to sin, but sin, when it is fully formed, brings forth what? Death. Sobering reality. Now, to illustrate this, i got to grab a prop. I know you're all really eager about this. Yeah, who are my fishermen and, and women? And we love to fish as a family. And man, I tell you what. Some of you are looking at my tackle box and going, bro, you need a bigger tackle box. Some of you guys have like five tackle boxes. 
Because, why? Well, because when I go to fish, depending on where I fish and what I'm fishing for, I want a different type of bait. And so, anytime you go to the fishing bank, you might pull out a whole different array. You, you might have a frog. Okay? You might fish with a bobber or not with a bobber. You have maybe some sinkers. You have some Rapala that will float. Some will sink. You might have a variation of spinners of different colors. Some yellow, some blue, some dark colored, some light colored. All of this pertains to, and you start getting into the, the logistics of all of this with someone who fishes a lot. Man, you could go on for hours talking about what to use with what, and in what situations, and what conditions. I'm going to use this one for this type of fish. And go on and on and on. Here's what we often think of temptation. We think that the enemy shows up to the bank with a loaded tackle box. And you know, he baits stuff and he, he comes up and he puts on whatever lure and he casts it out. And we're just sitting ducks. Oh man, he used the perfect lure. And now I'm tempted. Last time I bit that thing, it didn't turn out well for me. But it looks so good. Right? I always wonder what's going through a fish's mind. And the reality is nothing. They just want the bait. Right? Okay? Now, here is what's really interesting. In so doing, when we think about that, Scripture does not reveal in any place that the enemy knows what to use outside of what you have already given him to use. You see, Satan gladly takes any of God's attributes that you're willing to give him. In fact, that's what he wanted to begin with. So when you convince yourself that the enemy is all-knowing, boy, he takes credit for that. When you convince yourself that the enemy is all-powerful, you better believe he takes credit for that. But I am convinced from what Scripture reveals to us, God doesn't tempt. And in fact, temptation is when I'm lured by my own desire, which means that the enemy just shows up to the bank with no tackle box. And we, in our fleshly sinfulness, swim up to the bank and spit the lure right out on the bank. We say, here you go. Here is what gets me most. You start looking at another man or woman with lustful intent, you better believe that you just swam up and spit a sexual sin lure next to the enemy. You don't keep a bridle on your words. You just gave him the new and improved words wobbler. You begin coveting your neighbor's possessions. Oh man, he just got a free upgrade to the stuff spinner. You see, when it comes to temptation, you and I are the ones who give the enemy the ammunition. 
We're lured and enticed by our own desires. And when desire conceives, then it gives birth to sin. And man, once we step into sinful behavior, we have just opened a smorgasbord of evident weaknesses to our enemy. Now, I will say, it took me a long time to realize this. And in so doing, guess what my tendency was to do? My tendency, anytime I faced temptation or was prone to sin, rather than take responsibility for it, I went, man, the devil got me again. And then what happens? I repeat the cycle. Just like the dumb fish who has been caught before and sees the same lure. I always laugh when I'm fishing in one spot and I catch the same fish twice. I'm going, you are an idiot. But isn't that what we do? Right? This cycle of desire and, oh man, I want this. And yet last time I wanted this, it didn't turn out well for me. And yet I'm going to go back to it because, oh, it looks so appealing. But I'm going to go. You see this cycle that takes place. We are the only ones to blame. Now, I don't in any way want to diminish the fact that 1 Peter 5 tells us your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is real and he is active in seeking to draw us away from Christ in any way. However, we need not, as the church, diminish the power and authority he's given to us over the enemy. Over darkness, over these things that are desires of our flesh. And this is where the core truth of 1 Corinthians 10 comes in, that God will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. You know what that means? It means when I'm faced with temptation, God has already promised he won't let me be tempted at a level at which I cannot resist the temptation. And so I'm without excuse. I'm without excuse. If I choose to give in to temptation and sin, it is my own fault. And therefore, the consequences of my giving in to temptation, the death that is brought about when sin gives birth is my own responsibility. So what do I do? How do I encounter this knowing that this is the case? Knowing that my enemy does prowl around. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 5, I'm just going to read these couple of verses because it gives us such a clear exhortation in this. God is not the one who tempts me. I am the one who allows temptation to impact me. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, and this is actually uh, the passage we were just talking about in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Verse 9 is the exhortation. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's the other piece of 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation is overtaking you that is not what? Common. Everyone say common. It's not common to man. That means no temptation you face today, you face alone. 
Resist him. It's a very practical way. How do I resist him? If you go back to James and you glance ahead just briefly, James 4 verse 7. It says, submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That is, even though you have spit the bait right out on the bank and he throws it back in at you, if you resist, in other words, if the fish aren't biting, he's leaving. It's really that simple. And we convince ourselves it's way more complicated than this, but it's not. And you may ask, where do I get the power to resist him? And it's in Christ. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy. Get this. He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He might deliver them. 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in you. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. May we take responsibility for our own sin and also recognize in Christ He has given us power to resist temptation and pursue holiness. It is possible. Now there is a contrast here to the havoc that is brought on when desire is left unchecked. And the exhortation of verse 16 brings to light a sobering reality at how often we mistakenly blame God for that which is not His doing. Verse 16 of James chapter 1, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived, church family. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Every good and perfect gift is from God. There's several truths here in these few verses that this text reveals about who God actually is. And I'm going to tell you, one of the greatest checks you need to place in your life is reminding yourself that we are created in the image of God. He is not created in our image. And we live in an age where people are way more prone to place their own ideas and expectations about who God is instead of simply seeing what Scripture says and walking in that truth. The first thing we can identify about God's character is every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights. Most notably... We should be able to answer the question, what is the greatest gift? 
the greatest, most perfect gift from God is His Son, Christ. Who, while we were yet sinners, died in our place. Those of us who've given in to our temptations and allowed sin to be conceived in us, bringing forth death, Christ made alive in Himself. Though He was in the form of God, as Philippians 2 states, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He humbled Himself, taking the form of what? A servant. This great gift of God's grace, so that we might proclaim that we are not saved by our own workings, but saved by grace through faith. A gift of God. If we're not careful, you and I become guilty of minimizing that truth because we've heard it so much. And yet when we read this in James, it should cause us to pause and go, what good gift and perfect gift do I see that the Lord has given? And if your life has been in shambles and you can't see anything else, you should look at the person of Jesus and remember, He is God's gift to you. That any who believe in the name of Jesus would be saved and have eternal life in His presence. Wow! The second thing we see in this, in verse 17, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God does not change. Hallelujah! (laughs) Because you and I do. Man, we are all over the map, aren't we? Cultures do, leaders do, people do. God does not. There's no variation. There's no shifting. God is not affected. His purpose is not affected when we choose to live contrary to His will. He is the same. He will remain the same and His purposes will come to be. Praise God for that. This is why we can have confidence that if God begins something, He will see it through. Thirdly, what this reveals is that God has created us in His image for His purposes. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creation. God created us in His image. By His own will, He brought us forth for His purposes. This is even further emphasized in the rest of Ephesians 2. We often quote verses 8 and 9, but we lose sight of verse 10. Verses 8 and 9 where it says, For grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of works so that no one can boast. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. Verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That the fruit that flows out of us should be that which glorifies God. And 
when I cho- whatever I choose in the face of temptation, whatever I choose in the midst of that, either causes me to flourish as a first fruit of God, or it brings about death in that which could have been fruitful. You see that? Every single one of you, regardless of your past, regardless of your present, regardless of what you've experienced, you have the opportunity to produce abundant fruit that glorifies God. Every one of you. No matter what someone has said to you in your past about your worth or your value or what has taken place or what you can or can't accomplish, God can use you for His glory. But if I believe, if I choose to believe the lie that I've been told, or I choose to fall into the trap of temptation once again, I will bring nothing but death and destruction. And then what the enemy will do in that, knowing that that's what has happened, and knowing your weakness, he will go, see, this is all you are capable of. And yet God foresaw that you were worth dying for. And then he calls each one of us to recognize the great love with which he's loved us and to turn from sin. Repent. That's what repentance is. I'm going to turn from sin and I'm going to walk in truth knowing that he who formed me is greater than he who is drawing me back to the world. And that I can resist temptation. Don't ever let someone convince you that you are incapable of resisting sin. You are. The problem is, is when we identify and acknowledge I can resist sin, it means who is to blame? I am. Where is there hope in the midst of this? There's hope in Christ. There's freedom in Christ from the bondage of your sin. But you have to make the decision to turn and walk in it. And there is no one of us that can make that decision for you. And as long as you stay in the spiral of temptation and sin in your life, you will not produce godly fruit. And if you are going through life wondering, where is God? I'm going to tell you, the only way that you experience an absence the absent the feeling of absence of god in your life is if you choose to walk in the way of the world because he doesn't change he's in the same place he always has been and his grace is abundant so how do we apply these things the first one i hope has been very clear we have to own our sin we have to own our sin it is no one else's fault Whatever sin behavior you have lived in or are living in today, step one is owning it. I am to blame. Dads, fathers, husbands, your children and spouse are not to blame for your horrible temper. You are.
mothers, wives. Your husband is not to blame for bad choices that you have made. You are. Brothers and sisters, your co-workers, your family, none of them are to blame for the poor decisions you have made. It doesn't mean that you haven't been wronged by those people. But it means that I am only responsible for me. Own your sins. Secondly, resist future temptation. Remember, your enemy comes with no bait. Whatever lure he uses, you have given him. Which means I can choose to deny biting the hook. You have the power to do that in Christ. And thirdly and lastly, Find lasting hope in Christ. Remind yourself of what Christ has done on your behalf. And recognize that there is only eternity in Christ. And praise God, there will be a day when temptation and sin is no more. I long for that day. I long for that. And until then, may we be a people who own our sin who resist temptation and pursue Jesus with everything we have. And may that be what we call each other to. Not to do that on our own, but in authentic community with one another. Amen? I'm going to call the worship team up here. And uh, we're going to sing this song in closing together. And it's called Christ, My Hope in Life and Death. And I want this to be a prayer of ours as we proclaim it together. Um, If you don't know it, I want you to pay attention to the words. And as you learn it, I want you to sing it out strongly that we might walk with Christ as our only hope in this life. Let's stand together. Father, we give you praise that you have given us the ability to overcome temptation and sin through Christ. Father, we proclaim and hold true that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us through your spirit. And may you remind us of that when we are prone to blame someone else for our own faults. Lord, may we take to heart the promise that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just. You are faithful and just to forgive us. And cleanse us. That we can walk in newness of life. In a hope that's been brought to us in Jesus. Help us to see that clearly. And to pursue you. With unashamed adoration and awe. In Jesus name we pray.